Good morning. Well, for those who don't know me, my name's Rachel, and I've been a part of Portswood Church for quite a few years now. I lead our wonderful music and worship team, but today I'm dabbling in something a little bit different. Uh, Today, I want to talk to you about how to spot prejudice, how to perceive oppression, and how to respond to it, following in Jesus' example. My husband James and I recently took our older daughter Lizzie to the theatre for the first time. She's just turned four, and it was one of those um, adaptations of a popular children's story. Actually, Rob, I've forgotten my clicker. I don't know where I've left it. So, oh, sorry, there you are. Fine. He's all over it. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, this one was The Smeds and the Smooths by Julia Donson and Axel Scheffler. They're the duo behind The Gruffalo um, and other classics of uh, under fives literature. Um, and uh, does anyone know this story? few shows of hands, yeah, a few hands in the air, brilliant. It's really good. It's set on a far-off planet where there are two groups of people, the Smeds, who are red, and the Smooths, who are blue. And the Smeds like nothing better than to play in the lake, drink pink milk, and sleep in beds. Then there are the Smooths, who do nothing but bounce up and down on the hill where they live and they sleep in holes and they eat green stew, and they have nothing to do with each other. But one day, a young smed named Janet gets bored and sneaks off to the woods where she meets a smoo called Bill. They strike up a friendship, much to their family's horror. As grandfather smed said, never, never play with a smoo. They're such a nasty shade of blue. For the hundredth time, I say to you, never, never play with a smoo. But Janet and Bill kept sneaking off to play together. And as they grow up, they decided to get married. But their families forbid it. It's sort of Romeo and Juliet in space, right? (laughs) Grandmother Smoo says to Bill, Never, never marry a smed. Dearest child, are you off your head? They drink pink milk. They eat brown bread. Never, never marry a smed. Well, you can imagine what happens. But if you want to avoid spoilers cover your ears now, Janet and Bill run away together in a space rocket. Their families chase around the universe looking for them, and in the process of doing so, they start to become friends. When they return to their home planet, they find Janet and Bill are there. They've had a baby, and everyone celebrates. And you can guess what colour the baby is. The Smeds and the Smooths is a story about prejudice. They're suspicious of each other. They don't like each other. They don't mix with each other. They gossip about each other and put each other down. But the thing about the Smeds and the Smooths is that neither group has power over the other. They're on a level playing field. If we could have the next slide, please. What happens when there is prejudice and an imbalance of power? The consequences of that are oppression. Now, there's a social norm in Britain which is never talk about religion and politics. Well, we're in church, so we've done half of it. Let's go right out there and do the other half. Because really, when you put aside issues of who's in charge, who's governs, political parties, and all of that stuff, politics is about where power is. And it exists at every level of society. And Jesus wasn't afraid to talk about it. In fact, he ruffled quite a lot of feathers doing so. So neither should we be. There are a few passages in the Bible that mean a lot to me, but one of them is the uh, passage in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus began his ministry. 
After a time of temptation in the desert, he returned to the region of Galilee where he grew up, and he began teaching in synagogues. The first example of Jesus' teaching we hear recorded in Luke's Gospel effectively gives us a mission statement from Jesus as to what he came to do. He selected these words from the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it goes on. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. We're told the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So right at the start of his ministry, Jesus tells us that a core part of his mission, a core part of the good news that he brings us, will be setting the oppressed free. So let's turn now to Luke chapter 10 to see how he does it. I'm going to skim through the whole chapter, so you might want to have it open in front of you. If someone finds the page number on one of the Bibles in the chairs. Sorry? 1041. Good work, Hannah. Thank you. Um, So have it open in front of you, um, and we're going to skim over the chapter before zooming in a little bit um, on the story about Jesus in the home of Martha and Mary. Because each of the three episodes in this chapter features a different form of prejudice. It begins with the sending out of the 72 disciples. It goes on to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then finally, it comes to the episode in Mary and Martha's home. So each section features a different form of oppression, and we'll see how Jesus responds. At the beginning of Luke chapter 9, the previous chapter, we see Jesus sending out his 12 disciples to go from village to village in Galilee, proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing the sick. At the beginning of chapter 10, we see Jesus sending out 72 others to go ahead of him to the towns and villages in the area where he's planning to head to. An indication, perhaps, of the way that the movement around him was growing and the followers that he was drawing beyond the 12 that we know by name. He gives them various instructions, which we won't go into today. And after carrying out their task, the 72 return to him, we're told, with great joy in verse 17, reporting that even the demons submit to us in your name. And at the end of this passage, we see Jesus turning to God in prayer and rejoicing. And this is what we read in verse 21. We have the next slide that has this passage. Thank you. At that time, Jesus, full of joy and through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Jesus' joy came because God was bringing about his kingdom. That means he was transforming things in the world to be as God would have them. And the people he was using to achieve this were not the ones you might expect. It was not the wise. It wasn't the educated. It was ordinary, non-educated people. We must remember, of course, that in Jesus' day, education was a privilege of an elite few in society. The majority of people worked for their livelihoods and would not have been considered educated. Now, some of you might know that I work in the sociology department at Southampton University, So when I hear this reference to the educated and the non-educated, it makes my ears prick up. 
Because that, in that distinction, I hear a reference to what we would call social class. Social class is, of course, a way of talking about the hierarchies, the social and economic divisions between groups in societies which offer advantages to some people and not to others. This is thought about and measured in a variety of ways, but across the board, education is a key aspect of determining social class. And Jesus here draws our attention to how some people enjoy a range of privileges and advantages and others don't. And this doesn't happen by chance. It's built into the structures of societies. It's reproduced across generations. We all see it in the world around us. But Jesus also shows us that God's kingdom doesn't follow the same oppressive rules. If you'll excuse the slightly crude language in this comparison, it's not a term I would usually use, I think in our culture, Jesus' prayer might have sounded something like this. I praise you, Father of Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the experts, from the professors and theologians, and revealed them to chavs. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. So how does Jesus respond when he is faced with an unjust society? Well, first of all, he recognizes prejudice. He sees oppression for what it is, and he names it. And he notices where God's ways turn our warped, exploitative social structures upside down. Where God works through ordinary people, the people that we might least expect to be doing amazing things. Yes, Father, says Jesus, because this is what you were pleased to do. And secondly, when he sees this happening, he's overjoyed. And he responds in praise and worship to his Father in heaven. Moving on to the second account in the chapter, we come to the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. And we read in verse 25, Jesus told this story because an expert in the law asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus turned this question round to him. It was obvious that he knew the answer anyway, and he gave the answer. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. This expert in the law obviously had another agenda, so he pushed Jesus further by asking him, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus told his famous story about a man who was attacked by robbers while traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. First a priest, then a Levite, religious leaders who would be expected to be leading lights in doing the right thing. Walked past the man, didn't stop, did nothing to help him. Then along came a Samaritan, He took pity on him. He bandaged his wounds. He carried him on his own donkey to a place of safety, and he paid for him to be cared for until he was well. What was shocking in this story was the person at the center of it, the hero, if you like. You see, the Jewish people, of whom Jesus was one, didn't like Samaritans. In fact, they would have nothing to do with them. If we could have the map up on the screen now, thanks, you're doing a grand job. (laughs) Galilee, if you can see here, was in the very north. It's the yellow patch um, in the north of the kingdom of Israel. And Judea, where Jerusalem is, was in the south. That's the orange patch there. And in the middle, that whole blue area, was the the land of Samaria. Samaria. And, you know, it was common practice for Jews traveling between Judea and Galilee to go miles out of their way, on foot, I might add, in order to avoid even passing through Samaria. They wanted nothing to do with the Samaritan people. 
If we can have the next picture, please. I don't know about you, but for me, having grown up on this story, it's easy to hear this sounding like playground politics. But actually, it's much more serious than that. This boils down to ethnicity. And occasionally, the difference between Jews and Samaritans is even presented as a racial difference. Although Jews and Samaritans were all part of the ancient tribes of Israel, descending from Joseph's family, the northern kingdom of Israel was overthrown by the Assyrians around 724 BC. And as a colonizer, the Assyrians' policy was to subdue the local population by importing its own citizens to settle in the territory of Israel, which later became known as Samaria. Rightly or wrongly, the Jews in the southern kingdom of Judah accused the people of Samaria of having intermarried with the Assyrians and having taken up the Assyrians' gods alongside Yahweh, the God of Israel. In other words, they accused them of idolatry and they accused them of having compromised the purity of the Israelite race. So how did Jesus respond when he entered into a world where ethnic or racial differences were used as a basis for some to wield power over others? He changed the narrative. He told a story, probably a pretty common kind of story, but with a shocking twist. The character who's at the center of the story, who is in fact the model of someone who's going to enter the kingdom of God, is an ethnic outsider. Jesus takes a character who represents the most despised, racially marginalized people group and places them front and center in his narrative of what righteousness looks like. So finally, we come to the story of Martha and Mary. I'm going to read this section in full. If we can have the the next slide, please. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. So what's going on in this story? Well, first of all, we have Jesus, who, with his disciples, enters the village of Bethany and is offered hospitality by Martha, who offers up her home to him and his companions. Jesus was understood by people at that point as a teacher, or a rabbi, as they would have called them. And let's not forget, as Dallas Willard reminds us, that for everything else he was, Jesus was also the smartest human being that ever lived. People were drawn to his teaching and his wisdom, and he based his mission in Bethany from Martha's home. You can imagine the men of the village coming to hear him teach. Martha was hosting quite a high-profile village function, really, in her home. But what's Mary doing? We read that she was sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Her posture is significant. At a meal, people would have been sat on a chair. At a banquet, they would have been reclined on couches at that time. To sit at a rabbi's feet at that time was to take on a very specific position. A disciple. Now, there was nothing unusual about people choosing to follow a rabbi. 
to apprentice themselves to them, to take on the posture of a disciple. But they were not women. In first century Palestine, historical sources make it clear that women were very clearly defined to domestic roles. There were a few examples in literature from that time of exceptional women um, who took on wider roles in society, but they were exactly that. They were exceptional. In fact, many sources indicate that women were perceived to be the source of all sin and in constant need of being held in check by their husbands. For the last 40 years, we've talked about gender inequality as a glass ceiling. Well, in first century Palestine, it was more like six-foot-thick concrete. And you know, if you wanted to become a rabbi, you started out as someone's disciple. By sitting at Jesus' feet, Mary was putting herself on a trajectory that was completely incompatible with the expectations of a woman at that time. And in that room full of men, everyone would have been feeling uncomfortable. Martha comes in quite diplomatically, I think, in this context, and offers a way out of this awkward, embarrassing situation for everybody. But Jesus doesn't intervene in the way she suggests. So how does he respond? If we can have the next slide with the quote on. Thanks there. Well, firstly, he responds with great kindness to Martha. Can you hear the affection in his voice? Let's remember that she's not doing anything wrong. He says that what Mary's doing is better, but that does not mean that what Martha's doing is not good. She's faithfully upholding the cultural expectations of the time and is extending generous hospitality to Jesus. People in Bethany had the opportunity to meet and follow Jesus because of what Martha did. Martha, as a woman, was subject to the same prejudices as Mary and all other women at the time. She wasn't the problem. Nevertheless, Jesus upholds Mary's right to sit at his feet, to be his disciple, to place herself on a trajectory of following, serving, and representing him. Jesus says, few things are needed, or indeed only one. Jesus sidelines the gender expectations of society compared to what is really important, attentive listening to Jesus. Jesus tells us that everyone is welcomed. Perhaps this is just how I hear it, but Jesus' last comment, and it will not be taken away from her. I don't hear that as being directed at Martha at all. To me, this is directed at the room and at the social norms that would indeed have taken Mary's position away from her on the basis that she's a woman. Jesus' response to Mary's action is to uphold and vindicate her publicly as an equal and valid member of his community of disciples. And he does it pretty decisively. So what do we make of this? That's the end of the pictures. Thanks so much, you guys. What do we make of all of this? I started out by saying that we don't need to be afraid to talk about power. The problem is, once you start talking about power, it starts to become clear that we might have to do something about it. In the Lord of the Rings, there is this moment when Frodo quotes something Bilbo used to say to his friends Merry and Pippin before they set out on their quest. He says, and I'll make sure I quote this correctly or I'll be in trouble with my husband, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out of your door. You step onto a road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. Well, where do we see ourselves in these stories? 
Do we put ourselves in the shoes of Martha or Mary or the disciples or the people of Bethany? There's a guy called Mike Frost, who some of you might have heard of. He's a great Christian author and speaker. And he tells a story about a time when he was speaking at a Christian medical fellowship. He was speaking to a room full of doctors and nurses and other medical health professionals. And he spoke on the story of the woman who was healed of bleeding, after which Jesus goes to the home of Jairus and brings his daughter back to life. And he asked them that same question. Where did they see themselves in the story? And a few brave people raised their hands. Don't worry, I'm not going to make you do that today. But a few did on that day. And they said how they perhaps identified with Jairus, the father of the girl that had died. Or with the disciples who were jostling and trying to get Jesus to go where they wanted him to go. Or maybe even with the woman who was bleeding. And Mike Frost says that he was amazed. In a room full of people whose vocations were to make sick people well, none of them identified with Jesus with the healer in the story. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. We're called to be like him. He fills us with love so that we can show it to the world and through us, people can see and know him. So when we're confronted with a world of prejudice and oppression, he's our role model. So let's remind ourselves how he acted. Firstly, he recognizes oppression. He's not fooled by the norms and the expectations around him. And when he sees God at work in ways that turn the hierarchies of society on their head, he rejoices and he worships God. Now, when we're not on the direct receiving end of prejudice, it's not always easy to spot it. But it's there in the everyday. And at the same time, God is at work. I know a guy who is a youth leader And he had a daughter who had a number of physical and learning difficulties. And it was really challenging for her, and it just weighed on him really heavily. One evening, he was chatting with some of the young people after a church service, and he shared some of his anxieties with them. Even though they were a lot younger than him, and we don't always look to teenagers in our lives for wisdom, do we? Um, He respected them enough to cultivate a genuine and honest relationship with them, where he could be vulnerable to in appropriate ways. And then something surprising happened. The young people began sharing their experiences of his daughter, her warmth, her humor, the way that she always had a compliment or a kind word for them, the way she included people. And he was brought to tears of joy. He had been consumed by the problems But the young people helped him to remember the wonderful qualities God had put in his daughter. And we can praise God too for that. Because it wasn't through the church elders or the prayer ministry team, but through the youth group that God did this. Because that is what God was pleased to do. Secondly, Jesus changes the narrative. I'm reading a book at the moment. I've only just started it. It's by uh, someone called Chine McDonald. She was the head of communications to the Evangelical Alliance, and now she's the director of a think tank that looks at religion and society. She's also a black woman. Her parents migrated from Nigeria to the UK when she was a small child in search of a better life for their family. And she writes about how even in the church, which she loves, she often found herself feeling out of place. Sometimes in blatant ways, sometimes in subtle ways, she got the message 
that this wasn't a space for people who looked like her. Jesus takes people like Chine, who are sidelined, and places them front and center in his story. And finally, Jesus vindicates those who, like Mary, are brave enough to confront and challenge oppression through their actions. And I wonder if there are ways ways that we too can be allies to those who are standing up against oppression. Are there opportunities to speak out, to call it out when we see it around us? Because I think this could make a really big difference. I don't know about you, but at the moment I'm having the chance to meet up with a lot of work colleagues that I haven't seen for quite a long time. And I ask them how they are. And on a few occasions recently, the first response that people have come back to me with is just their despair about the state of the world, about what they see going on around us, and their absolute hopelessness to see how anything could change. But we have a hope. His name's Jesus. (laughs) We're called to be mini-Jesuses, going around doing the things that he would do if he was living our ordinary, mundane, everyday lives. Jesus has an army of people who are committed to wage love on this world, to bring light in the darkness. So what if all of these people were able to see oppression for what it is and bring worship to God when he transforms it? What if all these people were changing the narratives in our society? What if all these people were willing to put their necks out to be on the side of the oppressed? What if these people modelled a way of being radically inclusive of people of every educational or class background, of every ethnic or religious group, of every gender? I think the world might start to seem a bit more of a hopeful place, don't you? Let's pray. Father God, give us eyes to see the prejudices and inequalities in the world around us in the big things and in the small things. We praise you and worship you because you lift up people who are marginalized and ignored and use them to do your work. Lord Jesus, our teacher and our role model, help us to change the words and the stories in the world around us to include people where they've been excluded. Holy Spirit, Will you bring into our paths opportunities to be allies with people who were oppressed and opportunities to speak out in support of them? And when you bring these opportunities, help us to be bold enough to take them. Amen.